Well, I have been serenading you guys these last couple Sundays as we start out our messages. And last week I sang a little ditty from uh, The Muppets Christmas Carol, one of my favorite Christmas movies. But I, uh, I think I have picked a fight with a Photoshop artist and I'm a little scared that if I keep doing this, it's going to escalate because this is what I got last week. <laughs> so I am going to surrender graciously <laughs> until I end up uh, photoshopped in something truly ridiculous. But we are in the midst of an Advent series where we're looking again at the various kind of rituals and images and objects we've come to associate with the celebration of Christmas. And our, our goal has been to re-infuse the familiar with meaning so that we might experience God's grace afresh. We've discovered that the, the stuff, the, the trappings of Christmas actually have much to teach us about God's heart and his coming. And so far we've examined kind of our Christmas practice of of lighting up the darkness. Last week, we investigated the true story of St. Nicholas and and where he comes to play in our celebration of Christ's birth. And today, we're going to focus in on a prominent object in the Christmas narrative, something that is common to every nativity scene— which is Jesus' swaddling cloths. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read together the account of Christ's birth, starting here in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the line and the lineage, the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the guest room. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. There is a charming children's story called Angela and the Baby Jesus. It was written by Frank McCourt. He's the the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Angela's Ashes. And this short Christmas tale recounts a true event from the childhood of his mother, who grew up um, poor in Ireland at the dawn of the 20th century. And it tells of a precocious young girl, 
who steals the baby Jesus from her church's nativity display. And if you don't know the story, there's an adorable animated short that's on Netflix uh, that you can watch this afternoon. It's one of our family's Christmas favorites. And McCourt begins the tale with these words. He says, when my mother Angela was six years old, she felt sorry for the baby Jesus in the Christmas crib at St. Joseph's Church near Schoolhouse Lane where she lived. She thought the baby Jesus was cold and wondered why no one had put a blanket over his plump little body. He looked happy enough, smiling up at his mother, the Virgin Mary, and St. Joseph, and the three shepherds carrying their little lambs, all cozy in their fur. Even if he was cold, he would never complain, because the baby Jesus would never want to make his mammy the slightest bit unhappy. Little Angela wouldn't let it go at that. She was often cold herself, hungry too, but never complained for fear of being told by her mother and brothers and sisters to stop whinging. That's what they call whining and complaining in Ireland. No, she'd have to do something about the poor little baby Jesus, and she wouldn't tell a soul in the world. She had to take care of that poor little baby Jesus before he turned blue with the cold altogether. Making him warm was the important thing, and they'd never begrudge her that. Do you notice what's missing from this scene? It's actually Jesus' swaddling cloths. That is what has sparked Angela's attention. That is why the baby seems so cold and vulnerable. You have this little Irish girl who is herself someone who is familiar with the hardships of poverty. And she sees baby Jesus's vulnerability there. On the one hand, Jesus's swaddling cloths seem like an insignificant, ordinary detail. Brian and I have been raising our kids, three kids from infancy, and we're no stranger to the concept of swaddling. We've swaddled with blankets. We've swaddled with sleep sacks. Either way, the result is the same. The goal of swaddling is to transform your little bundle of joy into an adorable baby burrito that is constricted and warm and safe. And as best as I can understand it, what we're doing is we're replicating for our newborns the the nurturing environment of the womb. We're providing them with a sense of emotional comfort and well-being. And indeed, the, the Greek word that we see here, which is sparganao, to wrap in cloths, is linked with a second word in Greek literature, which is anatrepho, which means to nurture. Swaddling, therefore, is closely associated with a parent's kind of enveloping love and care as they shepherd their child towards maturity, towards the full formation of their mind, body, and character. You hear the the philosopher Plutarch, who's writing at about the same time as the author of the Gospel of Luke, describing how new mothers receive 
their babies with pain and suffering. And with tatters of swaddling cloths, she warms and caresses it both night and day. If it was only verse 7 of Luke chapter 2, I'd say that there's nothing to see here. Mary wrapped her baby in his blanket and put him in his crib. It's mundane. It's unremarkable. But on the other hand, angels proclaim, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is quite literally significant. It is a divinely given sign. If it wasn't heralded by heavenly hosts, you could write it off as like a verbal redundancy. Did the shepherds really need that additional clarification? Okay, you're going to go into a small village. You're looking for a newborn, just born today, and it's lying in a feeding trough. But don't mistake him, you know? Kids are hanging out in mangers a lot these days. It's, it's not the one cocooned in a blanket. It's not the one resting comfortably under his father's cloak. It's, uh, it's the one wrapped in swaddling cloths. The seemingly unnecessary nature of this detail invites us to investigate further. This is part of the heaven-sent sign. God's son, born to a virgin, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now let me take a moment to explain in full this ancient practice. Since about 4,000 BC, Greeks, Romans, and Jews swaddled their newborns shortly after birth. Once a baby was delivered, which was usually with the aid of a midwife, the baby's umbilical cord was cut. It was kind of trimmed down to its navel. And from there, the child was uh, rubbed. It was washed with water, but then it was rubbed with salt and wine, which were these kind of natural antiseptics to kind of cleanse the baby of any impurities from delivery. Next, the baby got a little baby massage as the skin was gently and soothingly rubbed with olive oil. So the child is cleansed, the child is anointed, and then the baby was embraced. And embraced babies were swaddled. A little bit more on that in a bit. But ancient swaddling was intense. It was legs together, arms by your side. They were kind of wrapped in a cloth and then they were wound up and bound with strips of linen or cotton that were tightly wound around them from toe all the way to head. They even put a little strip below the chin and one over the forehead. And these kind of swaddling bands, they're about four to five inches thick and they're about five to six yards long. So you should be thinking a little mummy by the end of this. Totally immobilized, utterly dependent. Well, why did they do this? Well, besides kind of warmth and a sense of security, uh, the ancients believed that an infant's bones were malleable like wax. And the limbs had to be restrained 
to ensure that they grew straight and strong. This binding, they thought, would correct any bending that had taken place during delivery. And really, it would compensate for any inadequacies in early nutrition that might cause things to to go wonky. So this process was maintained for only the first 40 to 90 days of life as as the bones kind of firmed up and hardened. So, was it at all unusual that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths? No. Most babies were. This is how they handled babies. Whether you were a prince or a a peasant, you were swaddled at birth. The only babies who were not swaddled were those that were exposed. We hear of this in a passage like Ezekiel 16, verses 4 through 7. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field. For you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and I saw you wallowing, this is God talking, I said to you, live, and I made you flourish. You won't read anything in scripture about abortion because that was not a super common practice in the ancient world. Far more ubiquitous and equally evil and horrendous was this practice known as exposure. In a pagan culture when a, back then, when a child was born, the midwife would be on hand to, to check the gender, to assess the newborn's viability and health, to investigate for any birth defects, etc. And then she would give a report of her findings to the father. And he would choose whether the child would be embraced and raised or rejected and abandoned. The power of life and death over this little precious soul was solely in the father's hands. If he received him, he was swaddled and given to his mother to be nursed. And if he spurned him, the child was carried out into the wilderness and left to perish there out of sight. It was an awful state of affairs, one that God's people, with their affirmation of life's sanctity and value, refused to play any part in. So that's a lot of messy and technical background. And now you know far more than you probably ever thought you wanted to know about the ancient practice of swaddling. But I think such an investigation is necessary for us to plumb the depths of this heaven-sent sign. What, after all, is noteworthy or important about the fact that we will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger? And theories abound, but allow me to share what I think is the, the best, most faithful reading of this text. What do the swaddling cloths signify? Well, they signify that the Christmas story 
is a human story. It says in the Gospel of John, and the Word, that is the the mind that created the cosmos, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We call this the incarnation, the enfleshment, maybe, of the God of the universe. It's an incredible mystery that deity took up our humanity, adopting and assimilating our experience into his very self for all eternity. God, the Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, became human and moved into our neighborhood. So consider this. God knows what it's like to be you. Let me say that again. God knows what it's like to be you. He can sympathize with your condition. He knows your situation intimately and completely. And the swaddling claws are a sign that Jesus is human just like us. He was wrapped in cloth by his mother as we all were. And like us, he would end his life wrapped in cloth again in the grave clothes of mortal man. But do you recognize the divine humility that this required? This is the God of the universe we're talking about. The one who it says in Job swaddled the seas at creation. And now he condescends to inhabit a frail human body that can grow cold that can grow crooked, that cannot provide its own warmth, nourishment, or care, that can be left in the wilderness to die. He empties himself of the abundance of heaven and he takes on our fragility. At his birth, the God of all mercy is wholly at the mercy of his wayward creation that he has come to save. There's such risk there. There's such cost, such humiliation. It's truly, to me, mind-blowing. We read in the book of Hebrews... This is Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted and tested as we are, yet without sin. He became human so he could identify with us. He became human so we could identify with him. It says in that same book of Hebrews, this is 2.18, for because he himself suffered when tempted and tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted and tested. 
but why did God do it? Why is the Christmas story a human story and not an angelic story? Well, it's because this is what it took to save us. Just one verse earlier in Hebrews, we read this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Someone who stands between God and humanity to make propitiation for the sins of the people. God in Christ became fully human and lived perfectly human so that we might be made more than human. God in Christ became fully human, lived perfectly human so that we might be made more than human. This is how he would rescue us from wrath, brokenness, and destruction. No longer would we have to be mortal men doomed to die. Because of Jesus, we have the opportunity to be men who live forever with God. Men for whom death and sin and evil cannot touch. Men and women who with joy and victory shine like stars, reflecting the image of God into all creation. Last week we met St. Nicholas. Today we're going to hear from one of his contemporaries an early church father from Italy called Ambrose of Milan. And he put it this way. I'm going to have it on the screen so that you can get the full oomph of what he's saying. He was a baby and a child so that you may be a perfect human. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes so that you may be freed from the snares of death. He was in a manger so that you may be at the altar He was on earth so that you may be in the stars. He had no other place in the guest room so that you may have many mansions in heaven. He being rich became poor for your sakes that through his poverty you might be rich. Therefore his poverty is our inheritance and the Lord's weakness is our virtue. He chose to lack for himself that he may abound for all. The sobs of that appalling infancy cleanse me. Those tears wash away my sins. He came to save us when we could not save ourselves. It says in Isaiah, all of us have become like one who is unclean, And all of our righteous acts, all the good things we do are like filthy rags. He came to live as humanity's perfect representative, our spotless lamb. He came to give his life to satisfy God's just wrath against us, becoming, as we read, the propitiation of our sins. That means he stood in our place. He paid our debts. And because he was worthy, because he was faithful, he can now wash us clean and make us new by his power and spirit at work in us.
We look at baby Jesus's swaddling claws and they tell us of his full humanity. But I think it's no accident that they remind us of two other bits of cloth as well. Surely they reminded the shepherds of the cloths cloths that they would lay in the manger. An ancient source tells us that shepherds had this practice of placing newborn lambs in the manger so they would put these soft cloths down so that they wouldn't injure. There would be the safe place to inspect the newborn lambs because they were always on the lookout for a lamb that was spotless, that was unblemished because that meant it was suitable. It could be set apart for sacrifice. And I think these swaddling cloths in a manger are supposed to bring that to mind. Our spotless lamb. But these swaddling cloths should also remind us of those linen strips used in Jewish burials. That Greek word to wrap in cloths comes up again at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus received at his birth the wrappings of humanity's frailty so that one day he might release us from that frailty once and for all. Another church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, declared, he was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection he released the swaddling bands of the grave. This is a little detail in the Christmas story that I have long overlooked. But now as we dig into it, I find this imagery beautiful and breathtaking. It is so rich and complex. God, the Savior, has come in our flesh. But there's one final message in the swaddling cloths. I think they are an invitation for each and every one of us. The baby is born. The Savior has come, but he must be embraced. He must be received and swaddled for him to save us. I feel like little Angela understood this. I think Joseph understood this. The man who has the power of life and death over him in that moment. Who's looking at a child who's not his own. I think Mary understood this. He has to be received. He has to be embraced. God has done the heavy lifting. He's come all the way down from heaven. He's taken on our humanity. And now he stands at the door of our lives and he knocks. A swaddled child is an embraced child. 
But the funny thing is, is if we don't embrace him, it's not him who's abandoned and dies off in the wilderness, victim to the brutality of our nature. It's us. Apart from this child, we're the ones lost and exposed to the elements. This is front and center in the mind of the evangelist John. His gospel begins this way. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Christmas story is a sparse story. There's not crowds. There's not people in power and authority rallying to the birth of the king. So many could not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, embraced children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Again, I love that picture from Ezekiel that we are the child abandoned in the wilderness. And he says, live. He says, I will make you flourish, but you have to receive me. It's funny, it seems like God uses people to form people. And so he becomes people to form us into his people. A lot of people's there, but... John doesn't let this go. You get to the beginning of his first epistle and he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Saying, don't miss this, this Christmas story, this gospel story, it is a human story. This is the life made manifest, made tangible, made human, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you that in him there is eternal life, which was with the Father and which has been made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may too have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. He says, we are writing to you these things so that our joy may be complete. May every heart Prepare him room and let heaven and nature sing. This Christmas, prepare him room. But even more than that, this Christmas, embrace him. We were designed for good. But whatever goodness we have was damaged by evil. Our evil and the evil we see all around us. So Jesus came so that we might be restored for better. 
He came to embrace us, to bring us into his love and his family, to send us out to heal a broken and sin-sick world, not in our strength, but in his. But he says, you have to receive me. So if you have not received him, or it's been a while since you have, since you've embraced the gift that came to us at Christmas, let's pray. Dear God, Lord, we come and we know we are not worthy of you. We know we have made poor choices. We know that we have been selfish. We know that we have hurt others. But Father, while we acknowledge that, it is not too big of a crisis for you. You have gone the distance from heaven to earth to save us. You have stood in our stead. You have paid our debts. All we have to do is trust in you. All we have to do is hold to you and embrace you. And we become your children. We become those for whom death cannot touch. We can become those who are no longer condemned by our brokenness, but we have the possibility of new life, new victory. So God, we confess with our mouths that you are Lord and Savior. We believe in our hearts that you came to save us, that you died on a cross, that you were raised from the dead. And we are saved. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.